Well, first of all, I want to give you a really, really warm welcome to our church this morning. A very warm Christmassy welcome. Um, I'm afraid I haven't got the, um, the hat today or the Christmas jumper. Um, but I really want to give you a warm welcome, um, especially if you're visiting with us for the very first time. I've got a very serious question that I want to ask you right now. Um, and that question is, are you a tinselly person or a non-tinselly person? Tinselly. So Kelly, Kelly's saying tinselly. <laughs> Clayton's saying non-tinselly. <laughs> so so um, what I mean by that really is, are you one of the people who thrives on all of the glitter and the gl- glamour of the Christmas season? Or are you one of the people... Um, who loathes it all with an undying hatred and can't wait until there isn't a bauble anywhere in sight. I don't know what, um, what category you fall into. It's actually become quite serious because there's now a new diagnosis um, for people who are unduly preoccupied with the festive season. Um, and it's called obsessive Christmas disorder. Um, <laughs> and... Um, Uh, The Urban Dictionary uh, defines this, um, any adult that is overly excited about Christmas and has a more than normal preoccupation with Christmas trees and clothing, or has more than two Christmas trees. So, so if, um, and apparently they say that severe cases can manifest as early as October. Um... (laughs) So, if you're one of those people who has got three Christmas trees up, the dog is wearing antlers and a reindeer jumper, um, then you may well be verging on having this condition. We can have a time of prayer at the end and we can just pray for you. (laughs) But on a serious note, although Christmas, Christmas in the West is a very highly elaborate affair, um, and there's all the trimmings, and the trappings of Christmas. But that's not always been the case, has it, across all times um, and cultures. So, for instance, my granddad told me that when he was young, all they really got for Christmas um, was um, basically um, an orange and some Turkish delight, um, and it would be in the stocking at the end of the bed. Um, At the time, the children would be over the moon with these meagre presents, but I wonder how your children would be if you just gave them a dishevelled orange and that was all they woke up to on Christmas Day. They might not be very pleased. But not only has the expression of Christmas changed over time, but it also varies from place to place. So in certain parts of the world, Christmas is, an, is a bit of a laughable irrelevance. So if you're in certain parts of Africa... Um, They're not wondering um, about what they're going to get for Christmas. They're wondering about where their next meal is going to come from. Um, Bob Geldof put it very eloquently and well, didn't he? He said, there won't be snow in Africa this Christmas. The greatest gift they'll get this year is life, where nothing ever grows, no rain nor rivers flow. Do they know it's Christmas time at all? I'm not going to break into singing, but don't worry. (laughs) So Christmas itself as a celebration varies. It depends on how tinselly a person you are. It depends when you were born, and it depends where you were born. And whilst it's a great 
joy to enjoy Christmas, to enjoy all the fun and the excitement, provided you don't attach yourself to the Christmas lights. Um, the origins of Christmas are actually quite humble in nature. They're quite humble in nature. This is because Christmas celebrates the birth of a humble king called Jesus. And he chose to leave all of the splendor and majesty of his kingdom in heaven and be born as a baby in a dirty, small stable in Bethlehem. So we read about this king in Philippians, um, and we're just going to read those verses again. Philippians uh, 2, verses 5 to 11, we read it earlier. And it says about Jesus, it says, Let this mind be in you also, which was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So we learn three, there's three, a few points I want to bring out from this passage, just briefly with you this morning about this humble king, what we can learn about this humble king. And a humble king is a contradiction in terms, isn't it? We think of kings as being um, very grand and very great, but this was a humble king, a contradiction in terms. So if we look at verses 6 to 7, the first thing we find about this humble king is that he is in the form of God. So God has revealed himself in the Bible as a trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a very profound truth, that, but it's a mysterious truth. We can't fully understand the Trinity. We can't understand it. But if you think about life, there are many things that are very profound, and some of the most important things to us in life, and we can't fully put them under a microscope or understand them. And the Trinity is a bit like that. But what we do know is that Jesus always existed as God the Son. He always existed as God the Son. It wasn't just when he was born to Mary that he suddenly became God the Son. He was God the Son. He has always existed as God the Son. Um, Isaiah, do you remember the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament? He foresaw the coming of Jesus to the earth. And on the screen above me, um, there's a, a quote of what Isaiah said, and it's very interesting. He said, For unto us a child is born, but unto us a son is given. So the Son of God was given. He wasn't created, the Son wasn't born at that time, he was given at that stage. So he was the eternal Son of God. And as the Son of God, Jesus enjoyed all of the power and the privileges of Godhead. His power was unlimited. He was involved in creation. He brought the sun and the moon and the stars 
into existence just by a mere word. Just by a word, his creative power was unleashed and the universe was formed and he flung those stars into space and the universe came into existence. It says in 1 John, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So he was God. He had all the power of Godhead. But secondly, the second thing about Jesus being God is he enjoyed a perfectly intimate and loving relationship with his Father. John describes we, uh, we, those words there from John, John in the same, uh, a bit later on, he says that Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. Very intimate language. So Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. He enjoyed that perfect embrace of his Father in unbroken joy in heaven. In heaven, Jesus would have experienced perfect bliss. His power was unlimited. He never experienced the terrors of pain, fear or loss that we experience in this life. He delighted in the joyful love of the Trinity. So he was in the form of God. But secondly, it says here, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He didn't consider it to be equal with God. That doesn't mean that Jesus was trying to gain equality with God. It meant he already had it. But what he didn't do is he didn't grasp and clutch onto the privileges that he had as God. Jesus was acting in the opposite way to Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. I don't know whether you've seen The Lord of the Rings, but if you, if you see Lord of the Rings, you'll remember the unforgettable image of Gollum and he paces around with a crazed look in his eyes. Um, he strokes the ring, repeating, my precious, my precious, and he won't let go of it. He's grasping onto it. He's holding onto it as Gollum. But Jesus doesn't do that with his powers and his privileges as the Son of God. He's willing to loosen his grip and he's willing to let them go in order so that he can come here to save us. So Jesus does the unthinkable. He never ceases to be God, but he's willing to relinquish his hold of those things. But he goes one step lower. He goes one step lower. Not only does he surrender those powers and those privileges, but he becomes willing to make himself of no reputation. He makes himself of no reputation. In one of Paul's epistles, he writes about Jesus, should come up behind me, he writes about Jesus and it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. But the staggering thing about Christmas, the staggering thing about Christmas, is that this infinitely elevated being, this one who is the image of the invisible God, 
He is willing to be born as a baby, unknown, unheard of, to a very ordinary couple, um, and to become a nobody. And it says in Luke chapter 2, talking about the birth of Jesus, it says, She brought forth her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So God the Son, the crafter of the planets, the crafter of the universe, he chose to lower himself and be born in the filth and the squalor of that stable, unknown and unforgotten. But not only was he born in very humble origins, but right throughout his life, he was an outcast. He was an outcast from the system. He was a social pariah. Adam read those verses um, for us from Isaiah um, earlier on. And it says, Isaiah has this graphic prophecy about Jesus. And it says he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So this preeminent Lord of creation, he becomes the despised one. He becomes the rejected one. But we also read that he takes the form of a bondservant. He takes the form of a bondservant in verse 7. So we talked about this before, a few Sundays ago, but a bondservant is really the equivalent of a slave. A bondservant is really the equivalent of a slave. Whereas a servant in biblical times had the right to pay and conditions, a bondservant had no rights whatsoever. He was entirely at the disposal of his master, to be treated as his master saw fit. He was unthanked, unvalued, trampled on by others. That's what Jesus became. Unthanked, unvalued, trampled on. He perfectly, he perfectly embodies the role of a bondservant, Jesus. He spends his life tirelessly serving people, healing their sicknesses, um, sharing their sorrows, pointing them to his Father. That's what he does. And Jesus describes his own mission in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. And that's the mission statement of our church, by the way. It says that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So not only did Jesus spend his whole life in selfless service, but ultimately at the end of his very short life, he sacrificed his life in order to bring many people to life. But we notice the next thing we notice about him is that he comes in the likeness of men. He came in the likeness of men. So Jesus could have come as a servant from heaven as an angel, as a, as a, as a glorious angel or as a messenger, but he comes in the likeness of men. He adds humanity to his divinity. He was already divine, the divine son of God, but he adds humanity to that divinity and he becomes clothed in human flesh in this incredible mystery. And it says in John 1 and verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, 
the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. So as a human being, Jesus was able to experience all of the fullness of human life. All of its joys, all of its sorrows, all of its pain. He knew what it was to suffer pain, grief, hunger and loss. But there was one crucial difference between Jesus and us. One crucial difference. He never sinned. He never, ever sinned. Never a bitter thought. Never a cross word. Never a look of frustration. He never sinned. And the writer of Hebrews above me describes Jesus this way. He says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that point that he was without sin, that brings us on to our next point about this king. He dies a humble death. He dies a humble death. So Jesus came to earth with one main mission, and that mission was to die. He came to die. On one, on one occasion, Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples, um, said, what's all this about dying, Jesus? Are you sure you, know, you really want to, you know, why do you keep talking in terms of death? It's so depressing, you know, oh, you know can't we just be positive? But Jesus said to them, um, he began to teach them, and he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and become killed, and after three days he will rise again. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. So Jesus never swerved from his message. He always knew that that was what he was aiming for. But why death? Why death? Why did Jesus have to die? Surely he was just here to tell us a good message, teach us about love. Why the need for this brutal execution on a Roman cross? Why the need for that? And the reason for that is sin. And sin is not a word that we like to use these days. Um, we think of sin as having the connotation of being naughty but nice. Um, maybe eating a few many mince pies and cream on Christmas Day. That's what we tend to think of sin as, don't we? But the thing is, sin, um, the Bible defines sin as breaking God's laws. Breaking God's laws. Um, it says in 1 John in the Bible, it says, Whoever commits sin commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. What are God's most important commands? Two commands. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second, love your neighbor as much as you naturally love yourself. Do these two things and you'll be doing everything that God requires of you. So who's done that? Who's done that perfectly? The Bible's clear that all humanity has sinned and come short of the, of the glory of God. It says in Romans 3 and verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
And this was the message Jesus came. This was why Jesus came. He wasn't just a social revolutionary. He wasn't just a man with some good moral messages. He came to save his people from their sins. Um, The angel Gabriel, you remember in the Christmas story, she said, sorry, he said, the angel, (laughs) he said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And how does Jesus do that? How does Jesus save his people from their sins? He does it by dying. He does it by dying. And as he dies, he takes the place of you and I, and he takes the punishment that we justly deserve. It says in 1 Peter in the Bible, it says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, the just for the unjust. But what sort of death is it that the Son of God dies? What kind of death does he die? The fact that he leaves the glory of heaven and he becomes a bondservant, that's, that's earth-shattering enough. But what kind of death does he end up having? You know, the cross wasn't just a means of execution. It was really a torture instrument. It was really a way of shaming the enemies of Rome. It was considered so shameful that it was reserved for the worst and the most loathed of criminals. Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. And so the people Paul was writing to here, they understood the implications of hanging on a cross. And not only was it used to shame Rome's enemies, but the Jews believed, based on the Old Testament, that whoever was hanged on a tree or whoever was hanged on a cross was cursed of God. Because it says in the Old Testament, it says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Cursed. Cursed. This, for Jesus, was the lowest rung on the ladder down from Godhead. He'd started at that place of being in perfect union with his father, in the bosom of the father, and he'd come down to the lowest position. Um, and he'd, he suffered the horror and the shame of a Roman cross. Um, being cursed by God, spat upon by men, suffering death, even the death of the cross. Even the death of the cross. Verse 8 talks about him becoming obedient. When he was God in heaven, his word was law. His word had formed universes. Um, There was all power in his word. It had a creative energy that anything he said could could create anything. And yet he learns obedience. And that obedience costs him his life. It costs him his dignity. um, And it causes his death. But finally, my final point going on through the passage, is that the humble king returns one day as the exalted Lord of all. He returns as the Lord of all. To the extent that Jesus is willing to stoop to rescue humanity, to to the depths he is willing to stoop, to that depth, God the Father raises him up and seats him in a place of glory and power. It says in Revelation that Jesus, the name of Jesus, is now more highly exalted, 
worshipped and adored more than any other name. In Revelation, they sing to him continuously, Worthy is the Lamb, worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. When Jesus returns, the despised one will become the highly exalted one and every knee will bow to him at that time, whether willingly with eyes full of tears of love and devotion and hearts full of adoration, or they will bow and kneel out of compulsion and out of the terror of seeing this king return. Everyone will bow to him. So this humble king, this humble king demands a response. He demands a response. We started off this morning thinking about Christmas um, um, and we started off this morning talking about the different forms that our Christmas celebrations take. Um, Whether they are humble, whether they are ostentatious, whether they're glitzy and glamorous um, or whether they're just very... um, threadbare and, uh, you know, very humble. But whatever form our Christmas celebrations take, we're reminded of a king. We're reminded of a humble king. His humble entrance and death into this world, his humble uh, uh, death, and finally his return to heaven, his return to earth, sorry, to reclaim his rightful throne. But, you know, there's one thing about this king it's not, it's not possible to be neutral about this king. It's not possible to be neutral about the fact or be indifferent to the fact that God the Son abandons the splendour of heaven and he endures the shame and the agony of the cross. We can't be indifferent about that as though it just doesn't matter. We can't ignore the fact that there's a reality in God's kingdom that God says repeatedly that whoever is humbled will be exalted to the degree that Jesus was willing to stoop. To that degree, God the Father is willing to elevate him and give him her position of glory and authority. And we can't be neutral that that thing one day is going to happen. That will be a reality. But the other thing is this humble king, he would much rather, he would much rather that we acknowledge him now to be that good and that perfect king that he's shown himself to be on the cross. He'd rather that we acknowledge him now as that good and that perfect gift. He wants wants us to enjoy the forgiveness and the new life that he offers this Christmas time. He extends that invitation to you. He wants you to enjoy um, that new life and that forgiveness. And do you know what he says in his word, this humble king, that one who's going to come back in blazing glory, um, you know, finally um, reclaiming his rightful throne, destroying his enemies. He says in his word, these very tender words, he says, whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. I will never drive away. I'll never drive you away. That Jesus hanging on the cross Bleeding, pouring out his death. He says, I'll never drive you away. And I'd like to offer you this morning, I'd like to offer you the opportunity to respond to that humble king. I'd like to offer you just briefly the opportunity to respond to that humble king this morning. 
And you can respond to him right now just by calling out to him and just by making a simple prayer. It isn't the prayer that saves you, but it's that aspect of reaching out to Jesus as reaching out to the one who is despised on the cross and yet the one who is glorified. And you can do that just by a prayer this morning. And that prayer is really just a tool. They're not magic words that save you, but they're a tool that you can use now to call out to Jesus. So um, it says in the Bible that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Hallelujah. Isn't that good news? So let's just pray this prayer. You can join it with me, or you can just say it in your own heart. Um, If you want to after the service, we really want to share um, about this good news about Jesus with you. So let's just pray this prayer together. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to earth as the humble king. Thank you for being willing to become obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I admit that I have sinned and broken your laws. Please forgive me because of your sacrifice. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can live for you now and have hope that I will spend eternity with you. If you've prayed that prayer this morning um, and you've meant it, or even if you're not at the point where you feel able to pray that prayer, then please come and speak to myself. Um, Come and speak to uh, someone in the worship team, one of the ushers, and we'd be really happy to explain to you more about this humble king, the one that we worship, despised, forsaken, trampled upon by men, yet now gloriously exalted.